0: Turn to Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20 will be our text this morning. What a passage of our Lord and uh, what He is going to do is amazing here. Mark chapter 5, read along with me as we looked at verse 1. They came to the other side of the sea into the country of the Gerardines, When he got out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. He had his dwelling among the tombs and no one was able to bind him anymore, even with chains, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains and the chains had been torn apart by him and the shackles broken in pieces and no one was strong enough to subdue him. Constantly, night and day, he was screaming among the tombs and in the mountains and gashing himself with stones. Seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up and bowed down before him. And shouting with a loud voice, he said, What business do we have with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you, by God, do not torment me. For he had been saying to them, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And he had been asking Asking him, what is your name? And he said to him, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he began to implore him earnestly not to send them out, to, to the, out of the country. Now there was a large herd of swine feeding nearby on the mountains. The demons implored him, saying, send us into the swine so that we may enter them. And Jesus gave them permission. And coming out, the unclean spirits entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea, about 2,000 of them. And they were drowned in the sea. The herdsmen ran away and reported to the city and in the country. And the people came to see what had happened. And they came to Jesus and observed the man who had been uh, demon-possessed sitting down, clothed. And in his right mind, the very man who had had a legion. And they became frightened. Those who had seen it described to them how it had happened happened to the demon-possessed man and all about the swine. And they began to implore him, that's Jesus, to leave the region. And he was getting into the boat, and the man who was demon-possessed was imploring him that he might accompany him. And he did not let him, but he said to him, Go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. And he went away and he began to proclaim to Decapolis what great things Jesus had done for him. And everyone was amazed. This is the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Hmm. Father in heaven, we pray that we do not forget your power and authority. We do not let this world in its emptiness and its lack of power and true authority rob us from knowing who you are. We thank you for the word of God and passages such as this, Lord, that remind us of the great authority you contain. Every knee does bow. Nothing does according to its own will unless you allow it. You have absolute sovereign control. And Lord, we thank you that you, in that sovereign control, that loving, sovereign control, knew us and have drawn us to yourselves. And Lord, in fact, these truths cause us to worship you deeply. They cause us to trust you in the good times and the difficult times, because we know you have control. We thank you for the man, Christ Jesus, the one who added flesh to his divine nature So he could suffer in our place. And that reminds us that the God of heaven, the invisible God, is now visible through Jesus Christ. And we know you through him. We believe. So Lord, we praise you for that today. There is so much to give you thanksgiving for, Lord. We live in a country where we can preach the way we preach and sing the way we sing. We thank you for those who have gone before us to make that freedom possible. Lord, we ask for more years, if it be your will, that we can continue to proclaim the glories of Christ both here and abroad, Lord. And so we express our thanksgiving for our country, our freedoms, our families, our churches. We do thank you most, though, that you freed us from our sins. That is our greatest gratitude. (laughs) We would be just like this man, completely bound if it was not for you. And so here are our hearts as I pray for your people here at Riverbend. We thank you, God, for what you have done. And we express deep thanksgiving to you. And on this week where America say, celebrates thanksgiving, Lord, may you hear the prayers of many in this room, around many of table, of giving you gratitude, giving you thanksgiving, giving you worship for our freedom in Jesus. So Lord, thank you for that be with those who are struggling and cannot be health-wise, those many who are traveling to see family. Lord, please give them travel's mercies, Lord. And may all that we say, sing, and do here bring glory to you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Supernatural power to cast out and to draw in. Jesus does both in this text. That's why I entitled it that way. When we get, begin to look at this text, I, started, I always ask questions of the text um, to help me start to get my mind around the context of it and what the Lord is doing here. And one of the questions that I actually asked in this question is that sounds more of a Christmas type of theme which we're maybe moving into that Advent season is why did Jesus come to the earth? It's a good question, isn't it? Why did Jesus come to the earth? I think there are a multitude of of answers that are uh, brought together in the cross and forgiveness and His death and resurrection and all of those things. But listen to 1 John chapter three verse eight: The Son of God appeared for this purpose. Now that's quite a statement, isn't it? You probably should poke your ears up and go, "Why did He come?" Listen to this: To destroy the works of the devil. That's what the Bible says. Why did Jesus come to the earth to destroy the works of the devil? That's what he came for. That's what he came as a babe, as we'll celebrate over these coming months as we look forward to uh, the advent of Christmas. Um, we remind ourselves that that babe came to destroy the works of the devil. See, this all that we goes back to Genesis 3.15 when the couple had sinned. They were hiding in shame. God seeks them out. There he covers them because their own covering fell very short of what uh, they needed. And there he reminds them in that great text, I will crush the head of the serpent. See, this is why Jesus came. In Jesus' last discourse, right before his death, uh, John chapter 12, a long discourse, several different uh, discourses within there. But in that last discourse, publicly, That he speaks. He says this, chapter 12, verse 31. Now judgment is upon this world. Listen to this. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up to the earth, will draw all men to myself. So here's the judgment of the world. If I'm lifted up, he's going down. (laughs) Isn't that great news? I mean, it's just incredible. This is why he came. Colossians 2.15, listen to this. When he, Jesus, had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them. There was no dancing on the grave of Jesus Christ. It was just the opposite. Jesus Christ beat Satan at the cross Hebrews chapter 2 verse 14 and 15 tells us that Jesus Christ put on flesh since we had flesh. Since we were children of, of man, he put on flesh as well. And he rendered powerless the devil. You know what he took out of his hand? Death and fear and slavery. That's what that verse says. Read it. Hebrews 2 14 and 15. He took out of the hand for all those who would believe the power of death. Second death. That's the one you want to be afraid of. The first one, hey, we're just out of here and heading for him. Um, The second one, that, that second death that tosses you into eternal damnation, Jesus took that death out of his hands. This is why he came. Unfortunately, many religions and often way too many people today see Jesus as this helpless victim. Oh, he's a good example of morality and and he was martyred and he he's a good example for us to live by let me be very clear here he is not a victim he's a victor (laughs) he came and and did what no one else could do he's a hero he's our hero he's the one we worship and sing to and upheld because he was victorious over Satan and his forces. However, as we study the life of Christ, the cross wasn't the only place where we see him have a victory. We see him in many places. Already in Mark chapter 1, verse 13, we see that the Spirit drove him into the wilderness and there he beat Satan just one-on-one. Just you and me. Three temptations, he took him to the mat each and every time. He has that ability to do that. In fact, it seems, and I want you to think about this, Jesus goes after the demons more than the demons go after him. Right? As we study our Bibles, we see that in Jesus' ministry, we know ignites this explosion of demonic activity more than we've seen at any time in the Scriptures, probably since the time of Noah. But the demons are terrified of him. They're absolutely terrified of him. And the attack is not by them to Jesus. It's Jesus going after them. Too much has been made of their power and their authority. In Christ, we stand with the one who has ultimate power and ultimate authority. We'll see again in this text that they obey his command immediately despite their hatred for him. They have no other choice. Jesus was teaching and casting out... um, Demons already. We've seen this in Mark, verse 20, Mark 1, verse 27. He says, they, the people, even the leaders, were amazed so that they began to debate, uh, debate among themselves, saying this. What is this, a new teaching with authority? And then they make this statement. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. I mean, you could see some of the people going, uh, you Pharisees command a lot of things, but we don't see any of that. We even bring in these demonic people to you and, and all you do is curse us. He casts them out. There's something unique about them. Because Jesus used very little effort to cast out demons, we already saw in Mark where they thought he was in league with Satan. And I, when we taught on this, I didn't quite have time to go into this text and I want to just take an extra minute to go show you something. Go to Luke chapter 11 with me. Because so I think this help set up this beautiful text we're going to study this morning. Luke chapter 11, verse 20. This is Luke's account of the same account that we had in Mark 3 and 4, where they uh, say that Jesus is in league with Beelzebub. Um, Satan because he has the ability to cast them out. And so Luke, Dr. Luke, just adds um, some extra thoughts to this uh, to have us have a fuller look at this account. Um, And so, of course, he says, he talks about no one can do this because this would divide himself. Jesus gives this um, so he doesn't cast out demons according to Satan. But I want to pick up in verse 20. Now look at this. But if I, that's Jesus, cast out demons by the finger of God... Now, that little phrase, the finger of God, oh, this would have got them. That comes out of Exodus 8, somewhere in... 8, 13, 8, 19, somewhere in there. This is when the magicians have said, uh, we can't stay up with what Moses is doing. Uh, we did okay with the blood and the water and some frogs and things like that, but he's way out of our league now. He's casting stuff out by the finger of God. So Jesus... Jesus does this. He says, look, if I cast out demons by the finger of God, they're linking that to Moses' account in Egypt. Oh, man, this must have fumed them. So he says, "Uh, if I do this by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. I am it. He's what he's saying. Look at verse 21. When a strong man, that would be Satan, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are undisturbed. Right? Right? So the strong man's got a hold of the man we're going to study here in just a moment, right? But when someone's stronger, that's Jesus, then he attacks him and overpowers him and he takes away from him all his armor of which he has relied on and distributes his plunder. And brother and sister, you and I are his plunder. (laughs) He takes away from what he has. Yeah, Satan's strong. We don't mess with them. We don't claim things over them. That's not our job. God, God, through Jesus Christ, has already done all that. What you and I do is submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and we let him plunder him. And you know, he's doing that every day. Every time someone comes to faith in Jesus Christ, he has plundered him again. That's what Ephesians 2 tells us. We were dead in our sins. We belong to the one who works in the sons of disobedience and God takes us from him. Now, Look, just one more verse, 23. He who is not with us, with me, excuse me, is against me. And then look what he does. And he who does not gather with me, that's Jesus, scatters. Imagine being a Pharisee in that little conversation right now. I know your hearts, you're against me, and so you're not gathering, you're scattering, and that's exactly what Satan does. He scatters. The last thing he wants is us gathering together. He hates the household of faith. He hates the church. He hates small group gatherings and large group gatherings in the name of Jesus Christ. He's a scatterer. And that's what legalists of teaching often does. And so here our Lord is teaching us the strong man. He, uh, he's strong, but he ain't that strong. And our Lord has the ability to overwhelm him. I love Dr. Ware's Instruction this past weekend to remind us that Jesus did all this in his humanity. Strengthened by the Spirit of God. All of us. Because, I mean, I know there's all kinds of stuff out there. A plunder. You know, we can claim this and claim those things. Uh, But in reality, God does strengthen us. He gives us our spirit for us to be able to walk in this life. And, of course, he never leaves us nor forsakes us. However, today's passage reveals that not since the time God cast out Satan in a third of the fallen angels has so many demons been taken on in one, to, one shot. And we're going to call them legion. We'll talk about that just in a minute to, to note how many were there. Jesus, here in his humanity, takes on the demonic world head on and they instantly obey him. So The context here is the God-man Christ Jesus, he's just exercised his power over the natural world, right? Just came across the Sea of Galilee, got into a massive storm with seasoned fishermen that thought it was all over. They were going to the deep sea grave. It it was over. And Jesus stands up and goes, shh, wind waves. So he's already done that. Now he's going to show his authority over the supernatural world. And this is the story of Jesus and the demonic. couple of thoughts. Jesus and his divine appointments. I just wanted to hit this just briefly here. Verse 1, they came to the other side of the sea into the country of the Gerasenes. Now, I love Jesus' divine appointments. And if you can't see this in here, I want to awaken you to this. He knows whose are his. He Later in John 6 says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one that comes to me I will certainly not cast out. And I love the the play of words when you look at this text. He's going to cast out demons, but he's not going to cast out the person, right? And then he says, for I have come down from heaven to do Um, Not my will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me that all, including this demonic and you and I who know Jesus Christ, that he has given me, I will lose none, but raise him up on the last day. So not only does the demonic come to him, but we come to him. And it's fun to think about. It's this great time of Thanksgiving. Lord, I thank you for that time or that date when you came and got me. You had a divine appointment with me, and you amazed us with your grace. It isn't hard to study this passage and realize there is no volition of the demonic. He does not have some free will and says, hey, I'm a crazy man running around, but if Jesus shows up, I'll give my life to him. There's none of that. And he's just like you and I. God's got to come get us and that's what we see because we realize there is none who seek after God. First Peter 2 says we've all gone astray like sheep, and 1 John 4:19 says he loved us first. So he must come and get us. Now, Jesus is going to uh, add this demonic to him. He's come through this great storm, and he's sailed across the sea, he's gone southeast from Capernaum and he's worked his way southeast across the sea of Galilee and he lands in this country called the Gerdines Gersin, excuse me um, Matthew calls it the, the Gardinas which is a, there's two cities that are kind of there and I think they kind of landed in between them of Gershah and Gerdera um, and here it's just a Gentile area but Jesus has, has an appointment and I don't want you to miss this he went through that storm to go get this man one guy <laughs> one guy He goes through a storm that scared his disciples to death to go get this guy. Second thought, no one is outside the grace of God. Notice as we read through our text, the disciples get through this storm, which I'm sure they were probably a little still shaken, not only at the storm, but who was in the boat with them, because they marveled at his power to do that. And just as they hit the shore, Matthew tells us that two men come at him. I think Mark focuses on one, probably the, the, the worst of the two here. And so here comes this man. So let's take a look at God's next elect, what he looks like, okay? <laughs> this will be interesting. In verse number two, he says that he's an unclean spirit. So that means the demonic world's living in him. The demonic world has taken possession of this man. And everything that comes with that, Satan and his followers love sin. They love wicked, immoral sin. The darker, the better. This is what they love. In fact, what they love, and I want you to mark this, they love rebellion. That's what they love. Rebellion. Satan rebelled against God, and they've been teaching and and pushing rebellion ever since. Children, young people. In this room, one of the reasons that we see great lists of sins in, in Romans and other places throughout the New Testament. And in those great lists of sins that we go, oh, those are really bad ones. In the middle of it, it says disobedient ch- children to the parents. Because rebellion is, is part of Satan's program. So here this man is. He has a demonic world living in him. He's in full rebellion to what God has to say. That makes a home for the demonic world each and every time. Verse 3 tells us he's dwelling in the tombs. Now, you and I probably have a picture of Boot Hill over on Main Street in our mind. Um, That's probably not true in the ancient world. Most of the tombs were dug out. They were caves. This gets even a little more creepier. Um, So they weren't walking through nice little tombstones and looking at people when they're born and they died. You know, they're in a tomb and they're carcasses are still in there in some cases right Uh, they didn't have nice coffins and some of all that stuff mostly in the ancient world you went into these caves and there was a lot of dead people and guess who's living in there (laughs) this is where this man was he was dwelling in tombs no one could bind him verse 4 says no one could bind him this is supernatural strength he tears apart chains and breaks shackles no one can bind this man. The supernatural strength of, of the demonic world in this human being is uh, without parallel. I mean, no one's even touching this guy. Can you imagine a person who can break chains and bind, can't be bound? Some of these have been seen. I've had just a couple of times where I walked away with some individuals that made their way into my office one way or another um, through the years or, or uh or just in ministry, it literally scared me. Just the pure strength and things going on, um, and and yet God protects. And I remember one particular instant, just kept talking about Jesus the whole time. I was scared to death. Just kept talking about Jesus and His greatness, and just this—that was the only way to subdue this person that was in my office. And eventually, God removed them out of there. Notice also that no one can subdue him. So uh, what, I, what I thought about that is, is verse 4 says no one can subdue him, is they also gave up on him. He's been given up on. Him. He's living out in the tombs and the hillsides. He's a w- complete wild man full of extraordinary strength. And he is unsubduable and he has been given up on. Verse 5 says night and day He's screaming. <laughs> How would you like this guy to be your neighbor? (laughs) This means sleeplessness. Sometimes, when people go through very difficult times and they'll come in for counseling, one of the questions we'll ask them, Have you slept? And before we deal with some of this, have you slept? Because you take a person who hasn't slept, they can't reason. I mean, craziness. Think about it day and night, he's screaming, running around the hills. This guy has lost it. And he's tormented. That's that's torment. That's absolute torment. This is what demons do. They torment. Living in the mountains, and the tombs. He's living off the land, so he's eating whatever he can. And then finally, look at the end of verse 5. He's a cutter. He gashes himself with stones, the Bible says. Can you imagine what the clinical psychologist would do with this guy? I keyed his story into a couple of websites. Here's what I got abnormal, abusive disorder, acting out disorder, addiction, ad- adjustment disorder, you think, um, aggression disorder, agitation disorder, alienation disorder, antisocial behavior. Anxiety disorder, bipolar, disillusioned, depressed, disoriented, egocentric, emotional reasoning disorder, don't know what that is, hostile, hysteria, insanity, language disorder, mental health disorder, narcissistic, panic disorder, uh, paranoia, phobia, uh, radical behaviorism. (laughs) Rage, sadistic, schizophrenia, social anxiety, suicidal tension disorder, thought disorder, and of course, he struggles from self esteem. (laughs) That was your 2018 psychological evaluation of the guy in Mark 5. Excuse me, Mark 5. So, how's the world going to fix this guy? They got him labeled. They'll label you very quickly. They have no problem labeling you, and they know have no problem prescribing something to you, but they can't deal with your soul. And this is why they reject God. Because if there's a God, there's are souls. And we don't know how to deal with those things. And so clearly, they weren't dealing with this guy. They had given up on him. I mean, some of the other, Luke adds that he was driven into the desert by, by demons. Matthew adds that no one could pass by this guy. So if you were trying to go to one town, to another town, and this guy, you were trying to cross this guy's hill, you ain't getting by. He's a mess. And remember, this is a Gentile area. So, one, Jews avoid tombs. They don't like anything unclean. And they generally don't like people acting like this. So he has been left out. To his own. And he's probably a Gentile madman running right towards Jesus and his disciples. <laughs> They're still getting off the boat. Their eyes are this big. And now this guy. You want to you go with Jesus? This is who Jesus sailed across the sea for. This guy. With all these, quote, disorders. Third thought. There's instant submission to the divine omnipotent God-man Jesus Christ. There's instant submission to the divine, omnipotent God-man Jesus Christ. Look with me at verse 6. Seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up and bowed down before him. So you're getting off the boat after the wildest boat ride you've ever been on. And before you can react, this man is sliding up to you, bowing down before him. Now, before you think they are worshiping him, Um, The word certainly speaks of a prone position, uh, proskuneo. We often translate it to worship. But here it is not motivated by reverence or repentance. I want you to show you that it's motivated by sheer dread and fear. They're terribly afraid of the judge, the Lord Jesus Christ. And no mere human could instantly cause this kind of submission. (laughs) you and I stood there and we had a whole, they'd probably just run us right over, right? This is Jesus they're dealing with. And no human could subdue him. We've already seen this. And yet, as soon as the presence of Jesus Christ is there, this man comes to his knees. And we know it's not just this man. It is the demons within him. Look at verse 7. And shouting with a loud voice, he demon's speaking through him. What business do we have with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God, do not torment me. Now, these fallen angels, think about it, who served God from their creation until they joined Satan's rebellion, were cast out of heaven, they knew exactly who Jesus was, and they knew exactly the power and authority the Son of the Most High God had. And so they find themselves in this prone position before the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, throughout the Bible, God has held absolute authority, sovereign authority over Satan and his demons. And since Jesus shares the existence, the the essence, and the glory of God, that means he shares this power over them, and they know it. And so look at some of the statements that come out of them in verse 7. What business do we have with each other? None. None. I am for obedience, you are for rebellion. I am the light of the world, you are from the dark. I come with life, you come with death. They knew it. They knew exactly that there was no no business being joined together. There's a true fear of the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice they call him Jesus, the son of the most high. They understood that he shared everything God shared. They understood that he was the very image of the invisible God. They know those passages. They know what Jesus is. They have seen him. He's eternal. They know that he created them. And so this statement is an absolute recognition of his authority. And then notice this last statement. He says, imploring them not to be tormented. Don't torment us. In other words, what are you going to do to us? (laughs) We know you have absolute authority. We know you are the the son of the most high God. You, You share all of his power, all of his authority, all of his essence, all of his glory. What are you going to do with us? Are you going to torment us? Matthew chapter 8 verse 29 says this, that they said, have you come to torment us? Now listen to this, before our time. Oh, they are not ignorant of what's coming, are they? Luke 8, 31 says, don't throw us into the abyss. Wow. These guys are not unknown to the scriptures, are they? They know the Bible. They know what happened. And of course, they are probably looking at what happened in Noah's day. These angels that came and left their abode and they began to indwell uh, Sons of God, sons of men, and and there, this super race of what we call a Nephilim, there began to have all the strength and power and all the immorality and evilness of, of Genesis six is flowing around them. And God said, "That's enough." And though he drowned it, mankind there were there's angels that he threw into the abyss, and they're there today. And Jude speaks of this. Listen to Jude verse six. The angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode. He, that's God, has kept them in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. They know about that. And so they say, "Is it, it's not our time yet. They, listen, listen, think about this. They know the end. They know Revelation 20. And the great dragon of old, the serpent, Satan, and his followers will be cast into the lake of fire for eternal punishment. They know it's coming. And you can hear it come out of them. Is it not our time now? Amazing thoughts. This true divine capital punishment torments these demons. (laughs) You want to talk about capital punishment? This is it. And it torments them, they're doomed. Now, why are they saying all this? Look at verse 8. Because Jesus has been saying to them, come out of this man, you unclean spirits. Just him saying, come out of this man, is provoking these demons to begin to question him. What are you going to do with us? We can't stop you. You're going to make us come out. We have no authority over you, but we want to know where, what you're going to do with us. Verse 9, he was asking them, what is your name? And, he said to, uh, and they said to him, My name is Legion, for we are many. So Jesus here is identifying them. He's making them publicly say their name. He knows who they are. Why? Because he created them. Angels are created beings. This is why Hebrews chapter 1 and 2 go into this great teaching that Jesus is not an angel, he's not a created being. They're created. And so he's identifying them, he's pointing them out. that. <laughs> Wow, can you believe that? I know who you are. What name are you going by now? Of course, they say legion. It's a military term. During the time of the Roman rule, a legion was 6,000 soldiers. We don't know exactly if that's what it meant here, but that's a lot of demons in a guy. And what's truly amazing about this event is is the largest exorcism since God threw Satan and his third of the angels out of heaven. That's recorded at least. Here's Jesus throwing these demons out. Notice in verse 10 through 13, the demons love sin so much that they don't want to leave the country they're in. Isn't that interesting? Notice verse 10. They begin to implore him earnestly, do not send us out of this country. We want to stay here. We like it here. I mean, when I'm studying this, I'm going, what's going on that they like this so much? Demons don't want to go to church. <laughs> They don't want to be around goodness. They love rebellion and evil and death and all that stuff. That's what they love. Don't send us out of this country. Interesting, at the time, pork was off limits to the nation of Israel. And if God was against it, they're for it. I think that's pretty simple, right? Huh, pigs. God doesn't let us eat. his people eat them. We want to go there. There's 2,000 pigs, I think just merely tells us a little bit about the amount of demons that were in this man. I don't think it was one demon per pig. Uh, certainly 6,000 of them could have been in one guy. Um, so it just tells us that this is a massive exorcism. It's a massive gathering of, of Satan's followers in this man. Most importantly, just we don't want to miss this is there's this instantaneous response by the demons towards Christ's command. And only, get this, only Jesus can give them permission to go. And though they may ask, they must have permission. And then think about the death of these pigs. They all rush down the hill, right? They drown themselves in, in the sea, right? But that's such a picture of Satan, isn't he? Death. Let them do what they want to do and everybody dies. Of course, the pigs die here because, remember, they love death. They love to kill. They love to destroy. They love sin. This is why we must be careful with sin. Bruce pointed this out last week. Um, Hebrews 10.10, this is the will of God. Your sanctification. Then it says, abstain from immorality. Because Satan loves immorality. His demons love immorality. Mary Magdalene is a, probably a perfect example of that. And God, through Christ, extracts the demons out of her and all the things that came with her. And she becomes a worshiper and follower of Christ. And he does the exact same thing with this one. Stay away from the things God uh, hates. Uh, J.C. Roud said a good definition of holiness. Things God, love the things God loves and hate the things God hates. We have to be careful because we get all legalistic and start making lists and tell everybody else. That's not what we do. Do you hate immorality? Do you hate it in your own heart? There's probably not a person in this room that struggles with some level of immorality. This is God's sanctification from you to abstain from these things. This is what Satan loves. But remember, these guys are limited; they can only do what God will allow. And let me address the pigs for those pig lovers in here. Um, I love pigs. <laughs> We had a lot of them growing up. I told the boys, you can only name them things we can eat. You know, so we had breakfast, lunch, and dinner. We had Hamlet and bacon baconette. Um, Oreo cookie. We had all those guys. And every one of them were delicious. <laughs> but it doesn't mean that God doesn't love animals. <laughs> he does. You know he loves more? Souls. And there's a, and there's a real teaching here. And he is not responsible for the wickedness of Satan or anybody else that does evil things. They are responsible for those things. But he came to save the man, not the pigs. Don't miss that. If you miss that, you're in trouble. And there's whole environmentalist movements that sort have of moved into Christianity that, I, I, they, they don't even know how to deal with this. They're so saddened by it. And let me tell you, from a rancher's standpoint of view, those guys ran right down that hill, got those hogs out of the water, and harvested them, because <laughs> that's what I would have done. And they were in salt, or or at least a salty sea of some sort. Maybe they were brined. I don't know. Um, so don't miss Christ's power over the deep and demons and the grace towards man. Fourth, the callousness of depravity that leads to the rejection of Jesus. The callousness of depravity that leads to the rejection of Jesus. Ephesians four seventeen eighteen 18 says this, because of the hardness of their hearts. And then it says this phrase, having become callous, given themselves over. Callous to the things of God. God says this, you go, I don't want that God. I want my own God. This is what people do. This is what you and I would do if it were not for the Lord Jesus Christ saving us. We would create our own gods, our own Bible, our own word that we would follow, and that's what we would go after. That's why everybody in the world who's ever been created is religious. And so we become callous. And I think these verses, as we read 17, 14 through 17, they're very self-explanatory. The herdsmen ran away. They reported to the, in the city and in the country, and the people came to see what had happened. And they came to Jesus and observed the man who had been demon-possessed, sitting down, clothed, and in his right mind, the very man who had the legion. And they became frightened. And those who had seen it described to them how it had happened to the demon-possessed man and about the swine. And they began to implore him to leave the region. I think there's a self explanatoryness to this. Matthew says that they went, the herdsman told the town everything. So that means they even heard that this, what had happened to this man, the grace of God. Mm-hmm. But notice verse 16, they would include in the story, God was gracious, Jesus was gracious to this man. They reported this untamable man is now bowing. They saw him run down the hill, he bowed before the Savior. They saw this conversation go on, and then these pigs get crazy and run down the hill into the sea. And they saw this man sit now before Jesus in his right mind. Notice. Notice what the crowd saw, verse 15, the power of Christ. They observed the man. They came, verse 15, they said they observed the man. The change is obvious when you meet Christ. I mean, we're not talking that this, you know, every one of us have this, oh, it is, I'm going to be careful. Every salvation is radical. Because you got taken from Satan's camp and brought into the Savior's camp, right? Into, from his family to, to God's family. But, but notice there's an obvious change going on. They observed him. They looked at him. There's marks of true repentance that have them there. Then it says, who had been demon-possessed, he's now free from demons. Jesus' supernatural power to cast out and to draw in had taken place. There's obvious this man is not possessed like he was before. Then they say he's sitting down. Well, that's new. <laughs> he, he's now under control. Remember, you couldn't get by this guy before. I don't know if he's killed men. Um, Who knows? We don't know the full backstory to this guy. But he's sitting there. He's under control. Notice he's clothed. Well, that's good. That's kind of what social norms require. Up to this point, the other other accounts tell us he was naked. That's not fun. (laughs) He's clothed. He's living normal society now. Look what's happening to this man. Look at the transformation that's taking place. And probably the greatest statement. Look at this. Huge. He's in his right mind. He's in his right mind. Exactly what the world could not do, but Jesus could. See, I I believe in the power of Christ. And I've been counseling for years. and, And some people come in and go, Pastor, you've helped us so much. I just told you about Christ. I just took you to his word. All I did was help you believe that he can change you. He can change your marriage. He can change your bad habits, your sinful habits. He can change. If not, what do we have to offer people? My heart has been broken so many times when I've heard young pastors preach and they preach on the power of Christ, and then someone comes up to them and says, man, I'm really struggling, this is falling apart, I'm having all these problems. And they go, "Well, oh, yeah, look, I'm just a pastor, I really can't help you with that. Get out of the ministry. Because Jesus is enough for us. He heals the mind. He heals a broken heart. He heals trouble that sin has created in our life. When we bend our knee to him, it is amazing what he will do. And we see it over and over and over. Apostle Paul, a killer of the church, (laughs) he becomes this great teacher of Jesus Christ. I mean, Peter, this wild zealot. Just go down to the line, the Mary Magdalene's over and over, and yet, well, you know, Jesus is good for you, you know, in church, but surely can't help you on Monday. Where is that coming from, brothers and sisters? It's not coming from the Bible. So we put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice verse 17, this is very sad here. They're imploring him to leave. The townspeople, now look at this, the townspeople are not, They're not any longer afraid of the man. They're afraid of the savior of the man. Holy crow, what happened there? This guy's been tormenting a whole region. And now they're saying the one guy who came in, changed this man's life. We want you to go. We're afraid of you. See the difference between submission and lack of submission? Brother, sister, do you submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ? Everything. Bow your knee in all the circumstances he has allowed you to go in. Have you confessed your sins of things that have got your mind in a way that shouldn't be or your heart in a way it shouldn't be? Have you dealt with sin? Or do you continue to blame shift everything to everybody else? See, you get to Jesus and you go, oh, you have everything I need. And submission enters our heart. And so this twisted, callous, deprived people reject the only hope that they could have. Exactly what the Jews do. Jesus says, well, you know, what good work are you going to stone me for? We're not stoning you for your good works because you made yourself out to be God. And they reject him. And God was in their midst. Can you look at one passage just briefly with me? Colossians chapter 1. I just got to show you this. You you might be here and you might go, well, I'm not not like this demonic. I don't have his problems. I beg to differ with you. (laughs) Let me show you some of our problems that Jesus has solved. Follow along, verse 13, for he rescued us from the domain of darkness. Problem number one. you're in the wrong domain if you don't know Jesus. You're in, you're in the domain of darkness. You're in Satan's family. You're in Satan's realm. You're following his will. He's your father. That's who you belong to. That's a massive problem. And with that comes every clinical thing that you could ever imagine they would label you with when we are lost into a dark kingdom. Notice that the work of Christ transforms us from, the ki- from that kingdom to the kingdom of his beloved son. This is what God does. In whom we have redemption, forgiveness of sins. Look at the balance of that statement, verse 14. Redemption and forgiveness versus the dominion of darkness. That's transformation. That's a miracle. That's supernatural work that God does. He, Christ, is the image of the invisible God, so he's shown us who God is. The firstborn of all creation, meaning he is the protos of everything. He is the first of all things. Why? Because he created him. For by him all things were created, both in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things. This is our Savior who saved us. And in him all things are held together. You got a problem? (laughs) Go to the one who's holding all things together. I've had people tell me, I just can't keep it together. <laughs> There's one who can. There's one who can. He can hold all things together. He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning of the firstborn of the dead. So he got out of the grave so you and I can get out of the grave so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. Do you think he was first place in the demonic's life after this? Oh my goodness, I can't wait to meet this guy. We're going to have such a good talk. Notice this, 19. For it was the Father's good pleasure to send Jesus across the Sea of Galilee to meet this guy and show him the fullness that dwells in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself. You've got some issues that you can't reconcile? Jesus can reconcile them you got to believe them. I have issues. I'm still working through them. I have to give them to the Lord. Lord, I know you can solve this in me. I don't like this in me. I know you can reconcile it. This is what you died for. And he gives you strength to follow him. Having made peace, some of your hearts and your minds are at war right now. Maybe you have war between friends and family. Maybe you have war going on in your heart. He can make peace. This is what he did through the blood of the cross, through him. I say whether things on earth or things in heaven, he can do it all, right? He just showed that in this text. And although, now look at this, problems we have. You were formerly alienated and hostile in mind. That sounds like what we just read from the psychologist, right? Alienation disorder, hostility disorder, not only uh, outwardly but inwardly in the mind, engaging in evil deeds. You go, well, wait a minute, I didn't do that. You may have not done it, but you are totally capable. And I, guess, I promise you, in your mind, since you were saved, you've done worse things. That's the graciousness of God. A couple more verses. Yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. And the demonic's going to be standing that way someday. This guy that the psychologist would just have a heyday on him. He's going to stand blameless and holy before God because of Jesus' work. And all those who put our faith in Jesus will do. And then this last verse, literally, if this is true of you, if indeed, if this is true of you, you will continue in faith firmly established and steadfast and not move away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all of creation under heaven, to which Paul, I am a minister. What an amazing statement. People go, well, you just don't understand my problem. Tell me about me. I was I was lost. I was a dead man walking in a live body. The Bible says we were hating and hating one another. Titus chapter 3. I mean, just read that stuff. No wonder the the psychologists don't like Christians. Because they go, You guys are schizophrenic. You were once hating and hated full. Now you're full of love for each other. You missed the Jesus part. (laughs) That's what changed us. Last thought, we got to go. Five, new life and proclamation of Christ. This is beautiful. Man, is this is a gorgeous part of passage here. Verse 18, as he, he was getting into the boat, that's Jesus, the man, that's the demonic, ex-demonic, who had been demon-possessed was imploring him. It's a word for begging. <laughs> oh, he wanted to go with Jesus, didn't he? That he might accompany them. He's, he's let me go, man, let me go with you. You're my only hope. Do you want to go with Jesus? This man did. Or you want to go with the world? You want to go with the world's view of marriage? You want to go with the world's view of life? Or you want to go with Jesus? This man here wants to go with Jesus. Verse 19. And he did not let them, that's Jesus. He said no. He did not let him. But he said to him, Go home. To your people. And look at this phrase here. Report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had, look at that phrase, mercy. I don't know what the other Yeheys reported back to the town. but they didn't report this. And Jesus knew that. They went back and said, hey, they saw you fall down in front of me. Conversation go on. Pigs run down a hill and drown themselves. Now you got to get the story correct. Go back and tell them what really happened. Tell them my authority over the demonic world. Tell them my ability to give mercy, forgive sins. Go tell them what I've done for you. If you're a brother or sister in the Lord here, there's no one that cannot do that. Often, I talk with men and women, children all the time, you don't have to be a theologian. Just tell them what Jesus did for you. You don't have, you know, you don't have to make them believe it. Isn't that great? You ever tried to make somebody believe in Christ? How'd that go? <laughs> but you do get to tell them about his mercy. That's what God implores us to do. I have a great God who has mercy. Tell him that. Tell him that. Notice in verse 20, he sent him away and he began proclaiming. What a great word. In Decapolis. Not just these little towns. If you look in your back of your Bible, there's a map back there in the time of Jesus. And it is a region. (laughs) This guy becomes a regional missionary. And God probably met all his needs, and he just went around for the rest of his life. This is me thinking, my commentary, and telling people about the mercy of God. What a great testimony! What a great story! And you think anybody could say, "Well, you just don't understand." Uh, here's my record. <laughs> that's why he uses everybody. You go, well, Scott, you don't, you don't know. I, I've made some really bad mistakes in my life. Uh, talk to him. Oh, you don't understand. I've had some mental struggles. And you're going to talk to him. See, the the best thing that you have to tell people is what Jesus did for you. Remember, a testimony is about that one, not about you. So the demonic, just like the woman at the well, said, let me tell you what this man has done for me. That's testimony. And that's what we spread. So in conclusion... Jesus has a divine authority over natural and supernatural world. He's in his humanity, the spirit is upon him, and he is fully God. And he's dealing with the natural world and the supernatural world. Satan and his demons are no match for Jesus. Don't forget that. You don't have to worry about that because they're no match for Jesus. You don't have to be a theologian to tell others what Jesus did for you. And then finally, is Jesus enough? Is his word enough? Do you need something more? Is this not enough? Because I don't got anything else. Because I think he's enough. And I know you believe that. And so you and I put our faith in Jesus Christ. We believe that you are who you are and you did what you said you did. And you can handle my struggles. And I want to now bow before you. I want to bow before you. I want to submit to you. There's some in this room that have never done that. And you have war and struggles and and you don't know what's going to happen at the end of your life. Today could be the day. Bow. Come talk to us afterwards. Jesus is enough. Father, thank you for this lesson. We want to meet the demonic, but we want to meet you more. (laughs) He, he is a man, in a lot of ways, just like us. We once were part of the wrong team. We were in the wrong camp. We were in the wrong family. And Satan had control over us and took us and did what he wanted with us. But then you came along, Lord, and you plundered his camp and you robbed him of us those in this room who have their faith in Jesus Christ alone. And we're now part of a different family (laughs) because you're stronger, Jesus. You're stronger. I pray, Lord, that all of us would put our faith in you, not only for salvation, but in the daily stuff. Struggles in marriages, struggles in rearing children, struggles in this life that we live in a fallen world, whether it be our jobs, our health, Um, background things that may have happened to us, Lord. Help us put our faith in you, Jesus. You can take care of it. Help us submit to you day after day, Lord. And watch your healing begin to take place. Give us strength, Lord. Lord, if there's those in here that need to talk, do not let them stay in their seats. Lord, push them towards someone that they may speak with, Lord. May we direct them to the Lord Jesus Christ. In your blessed Son's name, amen.